This episode of Remnant Radio is brought to you in part by our sponsors at Kairos Classrooms. Have you ever thought about learning a biblical language as a supplemental tool in your biblical studies? Well, Kairos Classrooms offers real classroom environments with with classmates and a live instructor who can help teach you biblical languages, both Greek and Hebrew. You need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. Uh, The price for a single semester is crazy affordable for anyone, so check out the links in the description and use promo code REMNANT to get 10% off Kairos Classrooms. Check out Kairos Classrooms today. Discount code R-E-M-N-A-N-T, REMNANT, to get 10% off your semester. Joshua Lewis here with Remnant Radio. Uh, We are talking about the Ascension. I've got Dr. Patrick Schreiner on uh, the Skype here. Uh, We're going to be discussing the Ascension of Christ Jesus. But before we do that, we want to let you know who Remnant Radio is and what we do as a ministry. Uh, We are a theology broadcast. We interview pastors and teachers from different churches and denominations from across the world, really trying to destabilize the echo chamber of theology and learn from one another. Our goal uh, is to just kind of suspend our presuppositions momentarily so we can kind of discuss theology and learn from the experts. Uh, we want to be Brians, study our, sh- our scriptures to make sure that we show ourselves approved. And if that's something that you're interested in, we would encourage you subscribe as we come out with content like this a couple times a week. Michael, yeah. yes. how have you been, man? How's your week? Uh, I've had a great week. A great week. Had a great show last last night with Father Ron Drummond. If you haven't seen it, you definitely want to check that out. Uh, we talked about modern Marcionism. Actually, kind of we talked about the historical Marcionism and then connected it with some modern day expressions, a really uh, powerful and great discussion that we had last night. Um, Next week, just so you guys know, and you can mark your calendars, we have kind of an atypical time. We're going to do a Monday three 30 show on the pre uh, let's see, uh, post-trib pre-wrath <laughs> rapture position. And uh, and we have Dr. Alan Kirshner in. He has a YouTube channel. You can uh, you can look up his name. But uh, anyway, he, he's written a book about the pre-wrath rapture. I, I think it's a good book. And, uh, and so we're going to explore that perspective a little bit. And uh, so that's at 3.30. And then later that night, uh, we have Crawford Loritz on the show. Loritz? Right. Loritz. Yes. I'm looking forward to it. It's going to be really good. Uh, I, I've listened to that guy, I want to say, on the Gospel Coalition, probably more than anything, and really, really love his stuff. So yeah. looking forward to that interview. Uh, we've got Dr. Patrick Schreiner on the other yes, line. A real uh, treat. Dr. Schreiner, tell us a little about yourself and your ministry before we dive into the subject matter. Yeah, so we're here in Kansas City, Missouri. We actually moved here about th- a little over three weeks ago from Portland, Oregon. Oh, wow. And so I am now a teacher at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary, so I'm sitting in their beautiful studio that they allow us to use for podcasts and interviews. So this is great. And we had convocation today. So the semester is just kicking off and I'm married to Hannah. We have four kids. Um, so yeah, I, I grew up in, in a great Christian home. I don't know how you want me to start like when I was born and, and then yes, go forward. I emerged from the womb. <laughs> and, uh, I was uh, eight pounds, five ounces. No, I don't know. <laughs> I don't remember. <laughs> so, so if people are out there and they're like, they want to follow up after this, you've written books. Uh, tell us about those books uh, so that people, because the subject that we're going to be able to cover today can actually be found in some of the stuff that you've published. So let us know a little bit about that for people who want to dive deeper. Yeah. Yeah. So I just published a book this summer on the Ascension of Christ, which it's a short little book with Lexham Press. And I just wanted to kind of focus our eyes on the Ascension. It's We'll talk about this, but it's one of those events in Christ's life that I don't think gets talked about a lot. And then I had a book, I think it was last summer, where I talked about uh, Matthew and kind of the theology of Matthew, how he interprets the Old Testament. Before that, I had a book on the kingdom. 
And before that, I had a, another book that was my dissertation, a little more academic. So cool. I really enjoy publishing and, and thinking through theology. Excellent. That is awesome. So we're going to talk about Ascension today. And I'll tell you guys, if you haven't bought uh, Dr. Schreiner's book on the Ascension, you definitely need to buy it. And I was just uh, telling him before the show, it's really concise, but really packed with uh, with important information and, and just all the relevant scriptures. So uh, you can read it pretty quick, but it's just a great book. So um, uh, Dr. Schreiner, let's just introduce the subject of the Ascension. Talk to, like, imagine our audience doesn't know anything about it. What is the Ascension of Jesus Christ? Yeah. So the Ascension is where Jesus rises up into the air and goes into heaven. And so it's the event that's narrated at the end of Luke. It's in Luke 24, verses 50 through 53, and then Acts 1, verses 9 through 11. So in terms of the narration of Jesus's ascent into heaven, we don't get a lot of verses in the New Testament. And I speak about that more in the book. That's part of the reason we neglect it. But historically, people have kind of spoken of it in, in a few different realms, but we would want to affirm that bodily, he, he's still a man and he's no longer with us. And so uh, as Christians, we affirm that Jesus is alive and he's reigning right now in the heavens, but his body is no longer here on the earth. So how do we explain where it is? Well, he, he ascended into heaven. So uh, the ascension explains at least partially that, and we can get more into the details. We also want to affirm with the ascension in terms of his rising to heaven, that it was a visible and public event. And we see that in Acts chapter one, we see the disciples looking into heaven and they watch him ascend and they're actually kind of confused and they don't really know what to do. Angels come down and speak to them, but it was a visible public event. This isn't, in my view, a hallucination. This isn't some story they made up because Jesus really didn't rise from the dead. No, Jesus ascended into heaven. And then um, the other the other uh, category that we would want to put in here is locally, spatially, he left the earth. And so um, historically, people have spoken about the ascension and the accession. If you, if you know what the session is, mm-hmm. that's the seating of Christ at the right hand of the Father. I, when I refer to the ascension, usually I'm combining both those ideas. So the ascension officially is just the rising of Christ into the air. The session is when he sits at the right hand of the father. But I think that's one kind of big idea. He rises into the air to sit at the right hand of the father. So that's what the ascension is. And um, I mean, honestly, it, it is kind of a weird event. And I, I mentioned that in the book. It, it's kind of strange when you start thinking about um, a middle-aged Jewish man rising into the air and then the clouds covering and the disciples watching him leave. I, I, I've told this story a few times on other shows, but I remember when I was preaching on the Ascension, I went out early in the morning to kind of meditate and pray over my sermon and it was on the Ascension. And um, it actually was the birth of this book. And I remember looking into the sky and there was one of those great mornings where you could see the, the, the sky, but you could also see clouds and I thought, what a weird event in one way to watch a man rise into the sky <laughs> and then clouds cover him. Like I started imagining um, <laughs> when could they not see him any longer? Were those clouds pretty low or was it like the um, balloon effect where you're like, I think I still see him. Oh, wait, it's no, bird, no, that's something else. Yeah, oh, that's Jesus. right. <laughs> that's right. So I don't I don't mean to make light of it because it's a very important event. But sure. from a modern from a modern perspective, I mean, a scientific cosmological uh, galaxy perspective it doesn't it doesn't make much sense to us yeah which is maybe part of the reason why we don't uh, speak about it a lot okay so it was visible it was public it was incarnate it was he was embodied he ascends into yeah. heaven uh, and I you know I hear 
constantly when I am talking to people uh, uh, about the work of salvation, right? I hear about the crucifixion, right? Uh, from from my, my Pentecostal brothers. I, I hear about the uh, the resurrection from my real reformed guys because anyone can die on a cross, <laughs> but that resurrection, that's where it's at, right? And then if I yeah. want to talk to like someone in the Eastern Orthodox, they're like, it's all about the incarnation, right? But, right, but, right. but we, I don't feel like have ever doubled down on the resurrection. Is the resurrection part of the the saving work of Christ in done, redemptive history? You mean history? ascension? What did I say? Did I you say resurrection? resurrection? I meant ascension. I apologize. We can talk about resurrection too. I'm, I'm no, happy. No, no, no. Uh, yeah, I'm all about the <laughs> resurrection. That too. Hey, I love all three yeah. of those things. I'm not trying to pit them against each other. But, but I, do, right. I do want to know like how, when we, we look at the cross, we say, okay, atonement. We say resurrection. Uh, he's risen from the dead. He's fully God, right? We see each of these have their own role. What does the ascension do? Yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, I totally agree with you. When I hear gospel presentations, it's like birth, life, death, resurrection. And then like, that's the climax. We're done talking. If yeah. we get to the resurrection, like we, we sometimes forget to get to the resurrection. If yeah. we even get to the resurrection. Really, and, isn't all you need just like the illustration of like you've got the gap in the cross bridge that goes across <laughs> That's right. It? That's, that's right. all you need, right? <laughs> you, you need him walking across that. He doesn't need to ascend into heaven in, in that picture, right? Yeah. Right. And, and actually, Actually, in, in most church traditions, the resurrection is kind of, according to the church calendar, uh, low church traditions is kind of the climax of that Jesus event that we follow in terms mm. of Christmas, Good Friday, Easter. And then we all celebrate on Easter. That's what we do. But honestly, we just kind of go into normal time after that. But historically, there's been a, a service that actually happens 40 days after mm. the resurrection to affirm the ascension. So that's a long way of getting to your question. But the the resurrection and the ascension are related to one another, but they're also distinct. They're also distinct events. We know that there's distinct events because number one, they're narrated differently. It's not like Jesus rises from the dead and then he just immediately ascends to heaven. There's 40 days in between there, according to the beginning of Acts. So he mm -hmm. teaches on the kingdom of God for 40 days. So they're separate events. We also have at the end of John, when Mary comes and clings to him in the garden, he says, don't cling to me because I still need to ascend to the father. So while I would refer, while I would affirm, I'm sorry, that uh, the resurrection and the ascension are both part of the exaltation of Jesus, they are distinct events. And so if I want to push people towards thinking towards the importance of the ascension, I would want to say that the ascension is not just a rubber stamp upon the resurrection. It's not just an event that's like, well, maybe that needed to happen and maybe it didn't. What really mattered was that he rose from the dead. No, the ascension affirms that Christ reigns in that forever. And the resurrection affirmed that Christ lives in that forever. Yeah. So in let me let me put this in another way. Uh the ascension without the ascension of Christ, Jesus is not crowned as the king of the universe. Hmm. Right. Because it's the confirmation. It's it's the it's the authorization. It's the coronation of the king. This is him ascending to the throne so that he might sit and rule. And while the resurrection is very good news, and I never want to deny that, same with the cross, same with the life, same with the incarnation, all of these things are good news. The story is not complete until he ascends to the right hand of the Father. Uh, what are the scriptures that stand out to you that point to the ascension slash session, speaking of Christ's reign? Because I think for some people, they re leave it off the story because they don't even know that ascension just means okay he's gone now 
to many people. And so, but for you, it means so much more. So what scriptures come to mind when you think about the, the ascension speaks of Christ's kingly reign? Yeah. Yeah. And, and just to piggyback on what you said there, uh, I think the disciples, we don't know exactly what they were thinking, but we do get them wondering what's going on here a little bit in Acts 1 when he ascends. And so I don't think that as Christians kind of struggle with, okay, what's the point of the ascension? We're in the same kind of boat as the disciples and the angels have to come tell them, hey, it's time to get moving. It's time to continue with the mission. Mm -hmm. And what you don't have at the beginning of Acts is them actually explaining in chapter one why this event is so significant. But what you do have is the imagery. The imagery points back to these Old Testament texts. And one of the things I wanted to show people in my book is that in, in some ways, much of the theology of the Ascension is birthed from the Old Testament, is birthed from this idea of um, a son of God sitting at the right hand of God to rule and reign with him. And so uh, a few texts come to mind. Number one, Daniel 7 is yeah. a key text where the son of man ascends to the ancient of days. If you remember the context, there's all these beasts that are arising um, around him. But it's only the Son of Man who gets to ascend to the right hand of the Father. And to and in the text it says, I think it's 13, 7, 13, 14, to him is given uh, an eternal kingdom, dominion forever and ever that all nations might serve him. And so that's a very clear text. And you know what? He, he, he ascends with the clouds of heaven. And, and, and remember at the beginning of Acts, uh, it's a cloud that takes him from mm-hmm. their sight. And so you have that same type of imagery where according to kind of a whole biblical theology, what's happening when Christ ascends is it's the son of man being enthroned at the right hand of the father. You could also look at texts like Psalm 1101, the most quoted text in the new Testament. Mm -hmm. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make all enemies your footstool. So there we get, I love this because we don't get like the conversation of what happened when he went up to the right hand of the father except we get it before it happens in the Old Testament in Mm -hmm. one sense, if that makes sense. So we get like a pre-look at what actually the father says to the son. He says, now sit at my right hand. You have accomplished all that I called you to. You could also look at Psalm 2. And then in Acts, I would also point you to Peter's sermon where he's speaking to those in Jerusalem after the spirit has fallen. This is in Acts 2. And he says, because Christ has ascended before the Father, he is now Messiah and Lord. And the people are cut to the heart. And they said, what should we do? And he says, repent and believe and be baptized. In other words, repent and and pledge your loyalty, pledge your allegiance to this new king who has been crowned as the king of the universe. So we could go to more texts, but Daniel yeah. 7, Psalm 2, Psalm 110.1, Acts 2. This, our, our basic confession as Christians is Jesus Christ is Messiah and Lord. Amen. And, and that is based on the reality of Jesus ascending to the right hand of the Amen. Father. Now, um, now, how would you understand Matthew 28, 18, where, uh, because we've just, you know, very thoroughly made the point that Jesus is coronated at the ascension. Yeah. Okay. But Matthew 28, 18 seems to introduce some confusion there because he says all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. How would you yeah. understand that text? Was he in some way, was he speaking proleptically about like what was going to happen? Was this, uh, was he sort of coordinated at the resurrection, but more fully at the ascension? <laughs> what, how would you understand that? Yeah, that's a great question. The, the emphasis in Matthew, let's begin here. Matthew doesn't recount the ascension. 
So the book ends with Jesus standing on the mountain uh, with his disciples, giving them the commission, the great commission. And so he doesn't ha- he doesn't actually give a narrative of the ascension, but that language, all authority in heaven and on earth has been mm-hmm. given to me is ex- the exact quote from Daniel 7, 13 through 14. Mm-hmm. So I actually do think it's a proleptic way for Matthew because what Matthew wants to emphasize he wants to emphasize that Jesus's presence will be with his people as they go out on mission. So as they go out on mission, Jesus is going to be with them. So he doesn't want to narrate Jesus leaving. I know that sounds right. weird, but he's got, he's got a theology to kind of push here. But he does want to affirm that Jesus is now the ruling king over heaven and earth. So he throws in that little quote from Daniel 7, 13, 14, which therefore points to the ascension points back to Daniel seven says, yes, it's only based on his ascension that he has been given all authority in heaven and earth. So in that way, I think at, even though Matthew doesn't narrate the ascension, he's alluding to it and he's actually got the theology there. And Jesus is saying that beforehand, but it actually is not completely complete. Maybe that's a bad way of putting it, but completely complete until he ascends to the right hand of the father. Love that. So I've got, I've got a question. You just made the yeah. statement that, that Christ will be with us always. And, yeah. and that idea that wherever we go, he is present, he's with us, or two are gathered in his name, he's right there in our midst. Uh, this idea of God's omnipresence. Um, I was listening to, uh, I believe it was Tim Keller on a podcast talking about the same passage you, you mentioned where Mary tries to cling to, cling to Christ. And he's like, don't cling yeah. to me because if I go... I will be with you closer than I could ever be and with all of yeah. you in a way that I can ever be, which got me thinking about the divine attributes. And I'm curious, well, when Christ is incarnate, it seems as if, and I'm going to use the, the language of willfully uh, chooses not to act on certain divine attributes. Uh, I'm going to maintain that he had all of those divine attributes, but chose not to act upon them. Um, as he ascends into heaven, is it his resurrection or is it his ascension uh, that seems to uh, to be kind of a, a transition period where he chooses then to act upon the divine attributes that he had formerly uh, chosen to set aside. I'm sorry, I, I didn't follow all that, but I, I do want to speak to how is he how is he present with yeah. us? Is that what you're getting to a little so, bit? Yeah. You know, so my question would be would be more broadly than just how is he with us. Um, uh, so it seems as if Christ in the incarnation when he can't he came mm-hmm. in to be incarnate that he he willfully chose not to act on certain divine attributes. Right. When right. did he pick those back up? When did he, not that he ever gave them up, but when did he start choosing to um, act upon his omni omnipresence? For example example was that at the ascension would you would you mark that at the resurrection i i I hope that's not too or would you articulate that entirely differently yeah yeah i'd I'd be curious yeah i that's it's a i mean you're kind of getting to the kenosis text in in philippians too in terms of what did he lay aside what what did he and so when i the way i understand philippians too is that actually he doesn't lay aside any of his divinity agreed he actually takes on human form at yeah, that point we for sure he's actually with that. adding <laughs> add, okay he's adding something to himself at that point which is humanity mm-hmm. now he doesn't i think as you say he doesn't act upon all of those divine attributes so there's things where he says i don't know or, or in, in some form now what that I, I actually haven't thought through in terms of at the resurrection or at the ascension. I do think there's a sense in which even though he's still in the body, 
there's a sense in which he then embodies all of the divine attributes in a unique way at the ascension. Not mm -hmm. that he wasn't embodying them before, but there is something about him taking on human flesh and not putting off that human flesh at the ascension. But now he's in the heavens. Right. And now he's, according to Acts, he's, uh, he, he's even coming down and interacting at times here on the earth, but he seems to be ruling and controlling all that's going on until his kingship is manifested here on the earth. So one of the things that's so important about the ascension is that though we cannot see him enthroned as king with our physical eyes, it will be manifested on the last day. So it does make us I'm get, getting off from your question, but it does sure. make us hopeful, according to Acts 1 through 9, not Acts 1, 9 through 11, that he is going to return. That's what the angels say. Just as you saw him leave, he will come back in the same way. In other words, his clarify again, because it, uh, yeah. would you would you understand the text with Mary uh, where he says, hey, don't cling to me? It's like and then and then kind of look at the text where he's talking to the disciple and he's like, it's better that I go, uh, because if yeah. I go, this is this is the kind of relationship I can have with you. Um, yeah. do, do you do you believe that uh, at least with omnipresence, at least with Christ being with us in a more a more universal way that that has to do with the ascension, the ascent at the ascension that Christ yeah. was he chose to then enact upon that omnipresence? Yeah, I yeah. I, I do link those texts to the ascension. I, I think there's something unique about him giving us the Holy Spirit. So it's very clear in Acts that his ascension is the spur for the Spirit coming. And so when we speak about presence, we need to speak about presence in distinct categories because in one sense, Jesus is omnipresent and God is always omnipresent. And there's right. another sense he in which he's Emmanuel. more present. Uh -huh. Yeah. And there's another sense in which he's more present with his people. That's right. And that we pray for God's presence with us. Like, what does that mean based on the omnipresence of God? Right. So you, you, we have to have almost um, levels of speaking about Christ and God's presence with us. What I think he's affirming in those texts that you brought up is that there's actually something better about him leaving. Yeah. Mm -hmm. He tells Mary, it's actually better that the Holy Spirit comes to you because my spirit will indwell you in a unique way that it has not indwelt you before this time, which is just an affirmation of the importance of Pentecost mm -hmm. in Acts 2. And so when Jesus says to her, don't cling to me, I must ascend to the Father, the rest of another text in John says, it's actually better if I go away mm -hmm. because if I don't go away, you won't get the paraclete. You won't get the right. comforter, the helper, the advocate. And so he believes, and we must believe And this. I, I talked to my kids about this. They're like, why can't we see Jesus? And I'm like, <laughs> hey, it's better, it's better that we have the Holy Spirit at this point. And I think that's really hard for us to believe. But it's so clear in the Bible that it is better that we have yeah. the Holy Spirit. Amen. And, and so you have texts like John 14, 18. He says, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. In other words, he's not here with us bodily, but he's actually more present with us now in in another way. And so I think we, I mean, I was watching um, that that television show on Jesus the Chosen. I don't know if you guys have seen it or Chosen. I don't. I've I don't heard know nothing but guys, good things. But yeah, it's it's great. It. But when you watch shows like that, you're like, man, I just want to be with Jesus bodily. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a good desire because we're all waiting for that in the new heavens and new earth. Man. But we also must believe that we're in a good time now, and, and we're in a in a superior time, I would say, than when Jesus was bodily on the earth. Now, now, why is it superior to when Jesus was bodily upon the earth in one sense? 
it, it is because Jesus can now indwell all of his followers on every continent. Uh-huh. He was only with a pretty small amount of people near Jerusalem, Judea, Galilee, so forth and so on, right? He didn't travel very far, but there's there's an expansion of his, if we can say it this way, an expansion of his presence to all of his followers now, whether that's Africa, Japan, right, uh-huh. China, Latin America. He is with all of us through the Holy Spirit. Amen. And that that is better. That is better. Yeah. So you're getting deep into theological things that um, I might have to punt to some of my <laughs> colleagues here, but in terms of omnipresence, hey, but they're good questions. We can pontificate, uh, yeah. you know, uh, in the future. <laughs> this doesn't have to be the only episode we do. That's fine. Yeah. There you go. There you go. Okay. Well, um, so speaking of, we, we've talked a lot about the presence of Christ. We had a, a question earlier. This is from Enrique Polo. Mm. Uh, he says, so can we clarify that God is not up there as in a spatial location above in the clouds like don't fear the sci-fi terminology was his yeah. kind of follow-up so uh yeah maybe talk about what it even means that um that he is in heaven and yet yeah. with us i get this question a lot because it's an interesting one but i would just point out that the bible is not that interested they're interested in saying he went up and after that, they're not too interested in telling us more. So everything that I'm about to say, I do want to say that we're just trying to put the pieces together, right? Mm-hmm. The Bible says that he's, yes, he's in heaven. Now, is heaven up there? Well, here's where we need to start rewinding how we think about space and place in the heavens. So in their worldview, the heavens was up, but it was a symbolic up. That means it's the highest place. That means it's the control room of the universe. Mm -hmm. And so I don't think if we take a spaceship up, up and up, that means we'll find heaven at some point. It goes beyond our conception of what space and place is. So in some sense, him going up is symbolic, but I don't think that means not real. I think he really did go up historically, verifiably, they watched him go. He still has his body and there is a place called the heavens, but it goes beyond our understanding of time and space. So now we're getting like all Star Trekky, but mm-hmm. it's okay. I'm glad that it you goes- said it because I'm feeling it, man. Yeah, I've heard N.T. Wright say before, like, you know, we shouldn't expect that Jesus is going to come back like a spaceship in the sky or a spaceman in the sky. And I'm kind of like, well, then how else would he come back? Because, <laughs> you know, it, yeah. Acts chapter one, he's coming back the same way that he left. So I understand right, it that way. Right. Do you understand it differently? I don't want to go against the bishop, but, but um, no, I, I am going to go. I love it too, right? He's no. one of my favorites. But, but I think that no, I in, agree. I, I agree with you, though. I, I think it's pretty clear in Acts that it does say, and actually First Thessalonians, Second Thessalonians, that he will come on the clouds of heaven and every eye will see him. Amen. Now, how will that happen? I, again, I, I don't know how exactly that looks where every eye sees him, but I do think God created the whole universe and he can make it happen if he wants to. So he went up with the clouds of heaven. Everything in Acts tells me that they are sitting there and he is describing this not as like an apocalyptic event, like symbolically, but as a historical event. Again, just read Acts 1, 9 through 11. And it's like a very bare telling of what happened. It's like, Jesus rose up, they watched him, they were gazing, then the angels came down and they said, get going. So, and then they say, like like you just said, he's going to come back in the same way. So I think he is going to come back through the clouds. Yeah, I, uh-huh. I think we are all going to see him. Now, where is he coming from? Well, he's coming from heaven. How is that going to work? 
I don't know. The Bible, again, is not interested in telling me exactly how that works, but it is using um, kind of the scripts and the metaphors through which people thought thought of kingship at that point. Uh And so in that time, in the ancient Near East in the first century, as a king or a Caesar was enthroned, they would rise up on the steps and go sit upon their throne symbolically and really showing that they ruled over everything. And then when a king had conquered, he would come back into his city and there would be a big parade, just like we have parades when someone wins the World Series or the Super Bowl. And they'd have a big parade and everybody would cheer. And that's the exact imagery that they're using in First and Second Thessalonians of him returning. He's returning to his kingdom saying, I won the battle. Now let's set this thing up. Let's get the kingdom going here on the earth. So, uh, yeah, I would just say. I mean, it would be unnecessary to cut the lines so dry that there's no supernatural appearing of Christ. I mean, we believe that Moses held yeah. a stick and to over be fair, his head and N.T. Wright the sea. might think, might agree with us on all of oh, this stuff. Sure. I just heard him negate what I've typically believed, but not give the other side. So I'm like, I don't know what he actually thinks. No, so no, no. I, he does, I was he curious does that, what he? the Dr. Schreiner thought. So um, <laughs> I'm, I'm sure N.T. Wright believes something like that. It, it He might just explain it slightly differently. Again, when we speak of the heavens towards the question, I don't want us to take away the physicality, but I also want us to say it pushes past our understanding of space and time because right. Jesus still has a body. So he has to be someplace. Right. Right. Well, now it is a spiritual body. So what does that look like? Well, that's where we don't, we don't exactly know. He, he appears in a room, the door's locked and he well, suddenly appears to his disciples, but he can also eat fish. So hmm. all those things need to come together in terms of his first uh, Corinthians spiritual body. What does that mean? But, he still has the body. Well, could it mean that he's physically present in communion? Well, I know that he teaches at a Baptist seminary. So you yeah, trying to get him to I, lose his job? I, I what think you I doing, actually man? know what your answer is since you're Baptist. <laughs> I, I am very Calvin on that. I'll just give you a quick, quick pitch in terms of uh, the real presence of Christ is with us. Mm. I'll just leave it at that. Amen. Man, yeah, what okay. a safe answer. I love it. Uh, <laughs> yeah, okay. So um, we touched on Christ's return for a moment. I want to I quote something from your book. It was actually you were quoting someone in your book, Robert Maddox, and this is what he said. And uh, if you could just maybe explain this quote. I thought it was a cool one. Uh, he says, The ascension is for Luke the point of intersection of Christology, eschatology, and ecclesiology. Christology, eschatology, and ecclesiology. So how is the ascension uh, of Christ an intersection point for those three? Yeah, so it's the climax in one sense. He's still going to return, but the climax of Christ's work. uh, He's enthroned in the heavens. So Christologically, it's like a cap upon his whole work. And then ecclesiologically, I think that's the other one he said, Mm -hmm. right? Ecclesiologically. Ecclesiologically, if you do not have a universal Lord, you don't have a universal mission. That's one thing that really stuck out to me as I worked on this. Mm. The um, mission to the nations, to the ends of the earth, is based on the journey of Christ into heaven. And so we like to talk about in Acts a lot, the journey of the disciples to the ends of the earth from Jerusalem, Judea, and Samaria, uh, unto the ends of the earth. But there's a prior journey, and that's a journey to the heavens. And that actually is the foundation for the uh, kind of commission to the disciples to go to the ends of the earth. And actually, we see that theology. We already brought up Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and the great the crowning of Christ, the seating of Christ that then compels and inaugurates uh, the mission to the ends of the earth. And then uh, what was the last one? Eschatology. Uh huh. 
Yes. Yeah. Eschatology, like this, we now wait in the in-between time we're go- to go out and spread the news of Jesus as, as the king and that kingship will be manifested on the last day. And so what Paul and Peter keep pointing them to is they say, look at Jesus's life. Look at what happened to him. He rose from the dead. He ascended to heaven and now he will come back and judge those who do not follow him. And so really, I mean, I don't, I don't want to make too much of the ascension, but we're talking about, I mean, this is where Luke's all theology, all of his theology seems to come together. This is why they're on mission because Christ is coming back. They need to repent and believe. This is why they're going to the ends of the earth. This is really the foundation theological point uh, for all of Acts. And uh, Luke is a slightly different because he's, he's giving the life of Christ. But uh, why do you think, why do we have to ask ourselves the question, why does Acts begin with the ascension? Why is it uh-huh. so central to all of his theology? And, and I've just kind of walked through some of those reasons there. Yeah, okay. and, and then to that point, like we have, um, you know, when we talk about the cross, we talk about something that's happened, right? We talk about the resurrection, yeah. we talk about something that's happened, but we talk about the ascension, the fact that Christ is sitting at the right hand of the Father. Um, what is what is happening now? Like, is is yeah. this an active work? Is this something that we look back to, or is is God actually doing something from the throne? Yeah, that's great. And and there's a great quote. Uh, I think it's from Peter Orr. He has a book on the Ascension. And at the very beginning of his book, he just said this line that's stuck in my head the whole time I was working on the Ascension. He said, and this is a way of just framing what you just said as well. We like to think about what Christ has done and what he will do. We don't always think about what Christ is doing now. Hmm. And so we we need to focus on what Christ is doing now because we don't believe that he, at least I don't believe that he ascended to heaven and he's sitting at the right hand, just kind of twiddling his fingers, waiting for God to make all of his enemies, his footstool. Mm-hmm. No, he's sitting at the right hand. That imagery of sitting at the right hand is a very active role. That's ruling and reigning. So any King who sits on his throne means he's actually actively working. Uh, we know, we know like um, not probably not in our government, but when they sit down in Congress, right? <laughs> they're supposed to be working. All right. We, we won't get into Congress, but anyways, they're supposed to be working as they sit and they actually make laws and they, 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 um, they decide on things in terms of where the nation should go and so forth and so on. And so when we think of Christ sitting, we should not think of him as just sitting there waiting. No, he's actually active in the heavens. So then that brings up the question of what is he doing now? And really that's the bulk of my book. I want to affirm the, the ascension is the enthronement of Christ. It authorizes his work. But what I really want to put people's attention on is the fact that he's still working in heaven now. And how do we think through how is he working? Well, I thought that kind of a trifold work of Christ gives us a nice, clear picture of what he's doing. So he's still acting as the prophet, the priest, and the king. And that was for me just like an organizing principle to think, I don't want to just affirm that he's king and reigning. I, I think that's actually pretty obvious, and we can we can speak more about that in terms of the details but I think we can also fill that out with his priestly work and his prophetic work. Okay. Well, why don't you do that for us? Cause we, we've spent a, a fair amount of time already talking about yeah. his kingly uh, activity, his Royal activity, but uh, maybe you could spend a few moments, just give us the overview of Christ's present prophetic work and Christ's present priestly work in the heavens. Yeah. So the way I like to summarize what he's doing as a prophet is that he's building his church and how is he building his church? How does he still continue to act as the prophet. Well, as the prophet, he confirms the truth of his word. 
He confirms the truth of his word and he gives his church, his body. So when you get to the prophetic kind of view, you have to connect Christ, the head and the body. Uh, he actually empowers us to do signs and wonders and he fills us with his spirit. So we already spoke about Pentecost. Some, Continuationist but as, over here saying, amen. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Here we go. It's, it's, <laughs> I love it when we make Baptists uncomfortable. We just push them a little bit. I don't know. You don't even know where I stand on that issue. I've got so, no you know, I was going to teach at a Baptist seminary, and they're all like, what stop, in the hide about this Stop right judging, now. man. You don't know his heart. Bro, I know plenty of Baptists exactly. speaking tongues more than my Pentecostal friends, bro. <laughs> I've got I've got weird views on on um, cessationism and continuationism, but we could talk about that later. But Part I would two. say it's <laughs> it's very it's very clear that Christ gives His body, His church, um, the resources to do what He did upon the earth, Dang. and that therefore they continue to build His church by witnessing to Him. And so it's not that Christ is not active anymore; it's that He's empowering His His followers to build His church, That's and so. Great. He gives them his spirit. He pro- they proclaim his word and he confirms the word and then they perform signs and wonders. And th- you guys want to pitch in anything of that in terms of prophet or you want me to move to priest? No, I, I, I love that articulation of prophet in particular because it, one of the, the difficulties as continuationists that we're always trying to, to wrestle with is the conversation of ontological authority versus delegated authority. And I feel like this is where a lot of abuses come because I, I do think uh, the way that God works this out is we don't have ontological authority to speak things into existence or authority at mm. all to speak things into existence to uh, to be some kind of divine healer and we have the power of healing to just heal the sick this is something that has been delegated so so even the cessationist out there who goes hey you know uh, Christ heals the sick he does today um and this is I would I don't know many cessationists that aren't even saying that anymore most of them have gone yeah God heals the sick yeah um but that's right but that's something that we can all as Christian brothers hold to as true is it's through that delegated work of Christ right. and I think that's beautiful right uh, absolutely absolutely yeah. and I think he would put this in the prophetic category um the the empowerment of the Holy Spirit and giving spiritual gifts for the building up of the church would you call that priestly either you, you, the empowerment of the Holy Spirit to give gifts. Yeah. So I view prophet, priest, and king as overlapping circles, distinct right. but overlap. It's right. kind of like a Venn diagram. Well, and so some of these things mesh into one another. Okay. Well, I asked because I, I wanted to have you just maybe for a moment unpack a little bit of Ephesians chapter four, that language of, uh, you know, he ascended. Oh, and yeah. He, uh, because because Paul seems to actually like go into a little bit of an explanation of why the ascension was necessarily connected to the giving of yeah. spiritual gifts for the building of the church. If you want to, I can read it, and maybe we should just do that for our viewers anyway. Yeah, but, that'd be great. Uh, but then, uh, and then maybe you could unpack it for us. Uh, he quotes from a psalm here, but um, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, Psalm 68, quotes, When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, Paul says, What does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. And then he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry. I'm reading ESV yeah. here. So um, there's a lot of debates in that text, but yeah. You want to ask a specific question on um, that? Okay. So I, I think a few questions. One is why was the ascension necessary 
for him to give spiritual gifts. One is what is all this language about like host of captives and all of this? Like what's, what is all that even about? Um, that's two questions. Why don't we just go with that for now? Yeah, he he seems to support, Paul is supporting this idea that Christ is building his church here in Ephesians 4. And what I think he's doing is he's showing that Christ has conquered at every level of the universe. So they had a view of the universe that had the heavens, the earth, and the under the earth, right? So you have heavens, earth, and under the earth. And Christ has conquered at every realm. And if he has conquered at every realm, then what a king does is a good king will give gifts to his people, after they have conquered. So again, as a Caesar would come back after conquering uh, another army, they would come back with the spoils of war. Yeah. Yeah. So this is kind of, I think that's the imagery he's using, but what he's saying is he's not coming back necessarily with the spoils of war. He's actually coming back and saying, I am giving you the resources, which are specifically the people that you might continue the work that I have begun. So I conquered uh, I, I conquered in one sense here upon the earth and you're to continue that conquering. And how are you going to do that? Well, you're going to do it uh, through the resources of apostles, prophets, evangelists, huh. pastors, and teachers. And so he's bestowing gifts upon his people so that they might continue in his work. Um, that, that's in terms of like when about the captives that he took from the, un- I'm getting really nerdy, the underworld at this point. Right. Abraham's yeah. where, where yeah, Abraham's bosom, where he takes like the fallen angels and locks them away, or mm-hmm. he's speaking about releasing of the Old Testament saints. So the captives could be viewed positively or negatively because this is quoting Psalm 68, I think it is. Uh-huh. Because it's quoting Psalm 68, I think it's a negative thing. I think he says when he ascended on high, he took many captives. In other words, he's showing he conquered every single spiritual force and power, and he took these captives. And again, it's like a Caesar dragging, yeah. I mean, dragging his con- those whom he's conquered through the streets and showing, look what I've done to them. Dude, <laughs> so it's kind of, a, I've yeah. always thought that it was Abraham's bosom, but like that preaches so much better. That's so, so cool. What, what would Heiser say? Like he showed those Nephilim what's w- up. WWH. Like, what <laughs> That's basically what's going on. I, the first time I taught it, I said Abraham's bosom and it was like the old Testament saints. And now I, I've switched over to the negative view. So I will admit that I, I'm, I'm pretty uh, loose on that one. I like okay. that, man. And in the same way that an army uh, would take weapons, would take the weapons of the army that they killed and all, all the dead soldiers. It's kind of like, I'm going to take those weapons and now we can use it so you can keep battling uh, and That's extend right. the battle. Okay. And that, that right. actually makes sense with Ephesians theology, right? It begins with kind of this one who's been enthroned above the spiritual powers and it ends in Ephesians six with put on the armor. Therefore he's given you gifts, Ooh. put that armor on. Dang, that's so, good. Now, and what yeah. about the language of he fills all things? Okay. What, what is, that exactly mean i think it says that in ephesians 4 didn't we say that somewhere yeah yeah that he, he descended is the very things. one who ascended to higher things than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe again yeah that that's a weird that's weird language i tie that to genesis what is what is humanity supposed to do they're supposed to multiply and fill the earth so who ultimately fills the earth well humans didn't accomplish that task. We failed in it. So the true human one, Christ, mm. must be the one to fill the whole universe. I'm getting a lot of schwo moments. This is good. Schwo. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know what that means, but it's I think okay. it's good. It's like an amen. Don't worry about it. <laughs> okay. Is it, like a, is it like a basketball player right now who's named Schwo or something like that? Yeah. Is, it, is it like... 
Is it like boom goes the dynamite? <laughs> this this is our pop culture yeah. expert here. I don't know anything about sports. Uh, uh, I could totally call head. myself pop culture okay, expert. Okay. But Sorry. On so I think he's, I, he's out of the two of us. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He has filled the whole universe by conquering the whole universe. And he's actually going to give that task back to his people. Because um, if you remember at the end of Ephesians 1. Yes. It, let me just read Ephesians 1, 22 and 23. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church. This is at the ascension. And his church is his body. This is Ephesians 1.23. The fullness of him who fills everything in every way. What's going to fill all things now? Well, Christ the head and his body. So our task is to go continue to fill the earth in the power of Christ. We only do it looking to the head. Amen. And so, and so, like the what does it mean exactly to fill the whole earth? Well, I think it means to spread the glory of Christ, the goodness of Christ, so that the new heavens and new earth are seen and embodied here upon the earth. Amen. That's awesome. I, I, so we, we talked about, okay, the king, we talked a little bit about the prophet, and you said there is some overlap, so we're not trying to be like, you know, yeah, too, too hardcore on it. Too hardcore but, on it. But yeah, so tell us a little about the priestly work of Christ. Yeah. So you think about what priests did. What would priests do? Well, uh, it's built off actually Ad- Adamic and Mosaic. What what they did, they'd actually ascend. I like to go to Moses. He would ascend the mountain of God. He would ascend Mount Sinai to be in the presence of God. And based on that reality, the Levitical system was built that Aaron and his sons would ascend in one way to the heavens. This is what the tabernacle and temple is. They would ascend to the heavens on the earth, just uh, uh, uh-huh. like a representation of it, and they would be in the presence of God. And what would they do? Well, they would give gifts and sacrifices. They would intercede before the people, and then they would come out and they would bless the people with God's presence. Mm. Now, Hebrews makes it very clear, though, that their system was broken. Their system was broken because they had to continually do that. Their system was broken because the priests themselves were stained with sin. Their system was broken because these priests would die. So you have, and now, according to Hebrews, an eternal priest who only had to die once, who brings perfect blood, and now he has a perfect body, and he intercedes at the right hand of the Father forever, presenting his blood before the Father, interceding for us, and actually blessing us in return. And I think that blessing goes back, actually, to the gift of the Holy Spirit, the presence of God in a unique way after Christ has ascended. So uh, just, I mean, I would just uh, urge listeners to look through Hebrews. Hebrews is such an encouraging book because we do have this great high priest who is interceding for us, who is praying for us, who is representing us like the priest did. And we are the jewels upon his chest. And he now, he now represents us before the father. And according to Hebrews 2, According to Hebrews 2, he's not even he's not ashamed of us. He's not uh-huh. ashamed of his people. He's actually proud of us and he's saying, These are my people. I represent them. I am for them, and I am going to give them gifts. And so it the ascension in that sense, it's not just a ruling and reigning and conquering doctrine. It is, and it's amazing, but it's also an encouragement to us. Okay. So 
You have uh, you have Hebrews chapter seven and Romans chapter eight speaking of the intercession of Christ, and then you have First John two one speaking of the advocacy of Christ. Would you merge these together as they are as though they are the same thing, or would you say that maybe the advocacy speaks of like sort of applying His justifying work before the Father, and the intercession is like Jesus just praying for us a bunch of about a bunch of random stuff, or is this all the same thing? How do you understand? his advocacy and his intercession? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually haven't, I didn't dive too much into that. I, I view advocate a little bit more in law court, ju- judicial kind of terminology, mm-hmm. just because John, there's this strong theme of like testimony and testifying. Mm-hmm. So I've always kind of put that in the realm of a little more legal and I've put Hebrews and Romans a, a little more in the emotional. Uh-huh. <laughs> I don't know if that's right or wrong, but I've kind of viewed it more that he, as we don't know what to pray, he is praying for us. He, so I think ultimately those, here's a long answer. I think ultimately those come together, but they're probably showing you different facets of what he's doing from different kind of metaphorical uh, angles. And so I think they ultimately intersect, but that John is focusing on the the more law court type thing and and Romans and Hebrews is a little bit more encouraging as they're wondering, should we turn back to the Old Testament pre-system? Should we keep having sacrifice? And he says, no, 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 no. You have Christ who is interceding for you. He's not getting so much to that law court terminology there in my mind. So if you guys have thought more about that, I'd love to hear what you think though. <laughs> have you thought more about it, Michael? Uh, I have thought about it. I, I've typically understood the first the first John one is is sort of like the uh, the applying of the justification of Christ before us, almost like if there was an Old Testament scene of it, like uh, the uh, Josh Zechariah chapter three. Uh, I guess it would be Zechariah chapter three with Joshua and Satan and the accusation, where it's like Christ is our advocate and he's and he's saying, "Hey, this is mine. He's justified." That's how I've typically yeah. understood that, and it's honestly it's been an open question for me about the intercession of Christ whether he was praying like, oh, Michael's got this big, you know, tribulation he's going through. I'm going to pray for him for that. Or if it's really the same thing. And I, and I don't if really it's know. Like a, Satan wants to sift you like wheat and I pray mm, for you. Or that's a good if question. A, if it's yeah. a, yeah, that's interesting. But, yeah. I but if pro- you're tying it to justification, you're bringing it to that law court kind of terminology it, as well true. with yeah. advocate. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's a good question in terms of, I think the best way to answer that is what would the priests intercede for as they went into, Absolutely. like, as, as we look through Leviticus, like what were they called to do? What was the theology of what priests would do as they entered the presence of God, the high priest specifically? I think that would help fill out and I'm not here to give an answer, but yeah. <laughs> I think that would help fill out the kind best of what they were called ever. to do. Always okay. just ask so, the, answer the question. Ask with the question. I think it's a very good question. Like such uh, that you're proposing, like what did the high priest like, or what, what did any priest, what were they praying about when they went in the temple? I'm pontificating here, mm-hmm. but um, if I think about Zechariah and when he got to go into the, the temple, he had his chance and he's praying in the temple and then he has that visitation from Gabriel and then all the people are praying on the outside and then there's within that broader context the barrenness of his wife it almost yeah. seems like he's uh, I mean I'm sure he's doing his priestly duties of like praying for all the people and all those things but it, 
It's like, here's my chance. I don't really I got to present my request. But it seems like he's maybe praying for himself a little bit there. I don't know. <laughs> he's like, can I get that big house now? That's totally speculative. I don't know. But I, I guess my the, where I was going with it is, could it be that the intercession of the high priest uh, or of any priest goes beyond merely things pertaining to justification? If I had to give an answer, I think I would say yes. And for the nation, yeah. So, so my, my question, uh, and we're we're kind of running towards the end of our interview, and this has been a ton of fun. Thank you so much for coming on. I've I've really enjoyed this interview. Uh, when, when we talk about like being seated in Christ in heavenly places, right? We're mm. seated with Him, and we talk yeah. about the ascension. This has got to be a really important part of this discussion. Can you maybe unpack that for us? Yeah. So if, I think it's Ephesians and Colossians that says yeah, like that's right. Christ is seated in the heavens and you're seated with him. Ephesians two, especially is the one I'm thinking of. And so it, we look at that and we're like, no, we're not like I'm sitting here in Kansas city and you guys are sitting in your studio, wherever that is. Um, Dallas, Texas. <laughs> and Dallas, Texas. Okay. Yeah. So how can that be true? I, I, the doctrine that helps us here is the connection of the head to the body the head to the body. Many times when we come to the scriptures and we see that language of head and body with the church and Christ, we're like, oh, that's a nice metaphor. But it's more than a metaphor in the scriptures. It's actually speaking to a reality. So the doctrine, another way to put this, if the doctrine of our union with Christ means that as Christ is seated in the heavens, we are seated with him. So just as, I mean, this goes to uh, federal headship, right? Mm-hmm. As Christ represents all of his people, just as how, how could a high priest represent a whole nation? Right. Well, because they were this symbolic representative of all the people. How could Christ die for the whole nation? How could one person die for a whole nation? Because he represented all of them. In the same way, Jesus Christ, who is our head, the church's head over the whole church, is representative of us. And we are one with him now. Now, how? Well, the, I think that gets into mystery somewhat. Like we, we are, as we have the Holy Spirit, we are with Christ. And so we are now seated with Christ in the same way. So we, just as Christ has conquered, we have conquered. I, I think that's the point in Ephesians. He says, uh-huh. you can put on that armor. You can go forth and walk in light and walk in love and walk in goodness because you are no longer under the powers of darkness. You no longer have to follow the flesh. You not, no longer are under the influence of the world. You are seated with Christ in the heavenly places and you are forgiven and you are ruling and reigning with him. And then as you keep going in Ephesians, Paul says, how does that look in my life? Well, I'm in prison. the victory of Christ looks like in me suffering because just as Christ came to the earth and embodied his victory in death upon the cross, that's how it's going to look in our life. And so the whole theology of the new Testament is that you have a greater hope than you could ever imagine. And your life is going to be more difficult maybe than you could ever imagine as well. I mean, just read through first Peter, you are chosen Mm -hmm. and your exiles, just like Abraham, just like Israel. Did it go like really smooth for Israel or Abraham? No, it did not. But they were chosen and, and and God called them to a higher calling. So I'm, I'm kind of getting around it, but I think we are truly seated with Christ in the heavens based on the head body relationship and our union with Christ. Amen. That's great. All right. So I'm going to ask one more question. And then after that, we'll do some closing thoughts uh, just to kind okay. of summarize our time. Uh, so my question is, why? Okay, so this is a hard question to think really how to word it. It, It's essentially what changed at the Ascension, and I know that we've been talking about that 
the entire time. Yeah. But I'm talking, I, the sense in which I'm asking that question is Jesus has already been eternally God. He's yeah. already been eternally Lord. And right. the angel of the Lord, eternally who begun. is Christ, is frequently called the Lord. And yet, Peter says in Acts 2, now made, that you've ascended, yeah. now that he's been exalted, God has made him both Lord and Christ. And yeah. so, in, in what sense was he not Lord in Christ when he was Lord before he was Christ? <laughs> wow. You're, yeah, oh, wow. you're trying to get me into like adoptionist Christology, so I appreciate that. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> And the, it's now the God-man, the one who has accomplished all in the flesh upon the earth, who is now enthroned at the right hand of the Father. So I think we have to tie this to the incarnation. Yes, he's Lord of the universe before because he's one with the Father. But he has now taken on, this is Philippians 2, taken on a body and he's done everything that the father has called him to. He has accomplished the father's will. So he can be designated as the king from time before time, designated as the Lord, the, the God, man, Lord, the Messiah, but he's not appointed until after the ascension. So I would again tie it to Daniel 7. It's the son of man specifically who is crowned as Messiah and Lord and given that crown at the ascension. That is, that is different than what was before. That is not the same thing. Even though he ruled and reigned, he now rules and reigns as the God man. Yeah. And, and you would say that, that, that kingship, that, that, that priesthood, that prophetic role, those are roles of men. And yes. that would have been something that would have been pre-incarnate. So, so in a sense, to your point, he was designated as that, but to yes. live that out as Israel's king, as Israel's prophet, as Israel's Messiah, there was an incarnation that was necessary for that. That's right. And if you look at Hebrews 5.1, what, what do they say about a priest? They must be chosen from among the people. Men. That's good. Yeah. So, I mean, like a priest has to be a man. I think the point is there partially... Uh, it can't be an animal because animals can't represent us in the same way. But I think Christologically, he's saying he was a man and he's acting on behalf of humanity. It's powerful. And therefore, I mean, this is part of his theology, right? He can sympathize with you because he has gone through what you've gone through. Hmm. He took on flesh. Yeah, and we, yeah. We've done some episodes on union with Christ and they've been fun episodes, but like, I feel like those episodes would have made a ton more sense if we would have done uh, the ascension piece first, because the union with Christ is great, but like talking about it's i think it's the ascension is that connecting piece it. that that yeah. really yeah. makes the union right. with christ stick yeah. yeah yeah absolutely well let's do some uh closing thoughts josh we'll start with you and and then maybe uh, dr schreiner after that josh do you have a closing thought yeah no I, I think that i mean ultimately when when we look at the work of christ i think probably for me it's it's going to be the, the that the ascension is not that it's uh, only in a, a finished work of something that happened a long time ago, but there's an act of God who is sitting on a throne who is willing and working on our behalf. I know we've talked about it a little bit in this episode, but uh, that, that brings great comfort that this isn't a God who... Uh, functional deism where he spun the universe into existence and then walks away uh, uh -huh. but that that he is actively involved and that's i think that's a the most beautiful part of the ascension yeah absolutely yeah i think for me it's just it is better 
that Christ has ascended. Yeah. It is better that he has gone away. I mean, John is just so emphatic about that because he's more present, because the church is more empowered, because Jesus reigns in a unique way that is different than he reigned throughout all of history. It's beyond words and mysterious to articulate. Uh, But yes, those roles of prophet, priest, and king, I just think of that phrase at the very beginning. I think it's Acts 1-1, you know, O Theophilus, I told you in the book of Luke, all the things that Jesus began to do and teach. Well, Jesus is continuing to do and teach as he works through his empowered church. Um, So anyway, that's, that's my big thing is just it's better. And, uh, and so I just think it's important that we capture the fullness of the gospel story mm-hmm. and not just mm-hmm. this plan of salvation track. That's so. great. Dr. Schreiner, you got any, uh, follow up thoughts? Yeah. I mean, the one thing that, uh, as I closed out writing this book, sometimes when you get into an event that like the Ascension, um, it can lead to denigrating other events in Christ's life and saying, yeah. Hey, this one's the most important. So you don't have to think about these other ones anymore. And really my last chapter it really helped me to reflect on how the Ascension connects to the incarnation, the life, the death and the resurrection and return of Christ and say, actually, when we put our eyes on the Ascension, it doesn't take away the glory of those things. It actually makes them more glorious in the sense. Let me just give you a few examples. It made me think more about the incarnation because it made me think this is the ultimate affirmation Mm. of the incarnation. I mean, the resurrection is as well, but he's actually bringing a human up to the heavens. And so he doesn't, he doesn't reverse the incarnation in that sense. And then in terms of the cross, I thought, you know, some people might say, you know, what we really need to focus on is the cross. Like you're really taking our eyes off what the gospels talk about. Like Matthew doesn't even talk about the ascension. Why are you talking so much about this? But the cross is only good news because Christ raised from the dead and God confirmed his work in the ascension. It is only a victory because God said it was a victory and because he reversed it because it was a victory, because it ended up being a victory. So I think we forget as we look at the cross from our perspective, we just view it immediately as a victory. But remember the disciples were depressed and they were down and they were like, what has happened? And the only reason that became good news, euangelion, is because Jesus rose from the dead and he ascended to the right hand. So for me, it actually brought my eyes back on events like the incarnation and the cross and made them even more glorious because there was kind of a, it confirmed the reality and the truth of those things. Excellent. Well, that's, that's powerful. And Dr. Schreiner, thank you so much for coming on the show. And we would, uh, w- we will look forward to having you back on in the near future. Uh, that, that's my, my, my clever way of inviting you back live. <laughs> manipulative <I think laughs> Manip- is the right word. Manipulative is the word. Uh, for those of you who thanks are, for having me guys. Hey, yeah. it's, it's our honor. Really. Absolutely. It is. Um, for those of you who are still watching, hit that subscribe button. Hit Absolutely. Like. Uh, we've got a lot of content that we're still coming out with. Uh, we've got a whole bunch of videos in the live queue. So if you're like, hey, what episodes are coming up? You can actually go to our queue uh, on the homepage of our YouTube channel. And there's a bunch of live videos that are set up there. Uh, hit the like button, hit the subscribe button so that you're notified when we come out with content like this. Uh, and then make sure uh, if you're watching this video to go into the description, our buddy Dawson has put together a study guide on the Ascension, and uh, there are just resources that we try to give you when we release videos for you to continue to do studies uh, to to kind of like uh, unpack things that we weren't able to talk about in this video. So, thank you so much for watching. Every Monday night, eight thirty p.m. Central Standard Time, and every month, every Tuesday from four to five. Uh, 
really excited. Yeah. Fun episode. And don't forget next week, double header on Monday, three yep. 30 and eight 30. We'll have yep. two separate shows. And be praying so. for a September 9th for the secret interview. Secret. I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep plugging that because it <laughs> creates suspense. Okay. Anyway, bless Dr. Guys. Schreiner. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me guys. Yeah. Appreciate it. See ya. want to thank Kairos Classrooms for sponsoring this episode of Remnant Radio. And if you're out there, you've ever wondered, hey, I wonder if learning a biblical language would be a supplemental tool for me to help me in my biblical studies. Well, you need to check out Kairos Classrooms. They offer Greek and Hebrew classes that can help teach you and train you. It's a live classroom environment with actual students and actual live teachers, and they help teach you the biblical languages of Greek in Hebrew. And you need to check out Kairos Classrooms today. There's a link in the description and you can use the promo code REMNANT to get 10% off. These classes are already crazy affordable, but with the promo code REMNANT, R-E-M-N-A-N-T, you'll get 10% off of Kairos Classrooms. So check that out today. And thank you so much for Kairos for sponsoring this episode of REMNANT Radio.